So welcome back to the Trafe Podcast. Thank you so much, David. Uh, I wasn't thanking you, but thanks to all our listeners for uh, continuing to listen to it, even though we disappeared for a month. Yeah, thank you to the person who was tweeting at us, telling us how many days had gone by. That really lit a little bit of a fire. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not an intended break, uh, and, and we're going to be back on schedule now, releasing every two weeks as usual. With- yeah, this is kind of lazy, but it, it just happened. We've been banking a bunch of interviews. There's still a lot of really interesting stuff we're working on. It just felt like the right timing didn't happen this month. Yeah, uh, it's part of what happens when uh, you're not getting paid for the thing that you're doing. Not that we're asking for that by any stretch. No, no, no. Just uh, uh, email david.e.zinman.gmail.com. <laughs> Transfer me uh, $5 a month. That would be like a weird Patreon. A non, like you just cut out the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, it's called paying people. <laughs> um, but a lot has happened since we've been gone. Yes, and we're going to talk on, on the forthcoming episodes about a lot of this stuff. So uh, we're not going to be wading into a lot of what's been going on recently here on, on today's short. Yeah, but I mean, I think we're a Montreal show and there was a terrorist attack in a mosque several weeks ago. Six people were killed by a white nationalist. Yeah, he wasn't just a white nationalist. He actually also, according to people that he had relationships with, had very pro-Israel politics. He had, you know, like the IDF on his Facebook page and, and things like that. And so we're working on another episode of the podcast to deal more in depth with the history of anti-Muslim ideas and actions in Quebec. But we just wanted to acknowledge what had happened. I mean, there have been a lot of different responses to the shooting. Uh, the Jewish community has had several different responses to it. There is the uh, institutional response from groups like the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs that are horrifying. For those who are in the U.S. or not following, members of the Canadian legislature wanted to pass some kind of a bill condemning Islamophobia, empty politics in a lot of ways. But ultimately, the institutional Jewish community in the form of Sija has taken a public stance against this bill because something about freedom of speech? We don't know what Islamophobia means. We're going to get in trouble for hating Islam. Yeah, it's it's absolutely horrifying. But then, I don't know if you saw this, Sam, there's, there's a whole bunch of examples, both in Montreal and, and in Toronto, of different Jewish congregations, just of their own volition in more of a grassroots way, making connections with mosques, having these rings of solidarity that people were forming around mosques that felt like they were at risk. So that was extremely heartening to see. Really heartening in the wake of the violence that happened. Uh, Again, more on this in our upcoming episode. So wait, is there, there's not anything new in the life of David E. Zinman? Um, Since when? What do you mean? Uh, Last month, I guess. That's how long we haven't made a podcast. I mean, uh, I mean, this is going to probably be confusing for people listening because this is being recorded probably several weeks before it's released. But I guess what's been new for me is preparing for this talk we're giving at Vassar College. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we don't get turned away at the board. Hopefully it went really well. Or it definitely went really well. Yeah. Uh, we were crowned best speakers at Vassar College 2017. Yeah. I mean, if, if there is uh, some sort of horrible incident <laughs> at, at the event and we don't want to talk about it, uh, I guess we'll just edit this out. Yep. Definitely. But otherwise, hopefully it will be good. And then we had a great weekend in New York City. Yeah. I'm sure we did. Good old Big Apple. Retroactively. Yep. (laughs) Um, All right. So who do we have on the show today? So we have Orit Bashkin on the show today. Orit is a professor of modern Middle East history at the University of Chicago. And we wanted to have her on the show to talk about a book that she published three years ago now, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, about the history of Jews in Iraq. Yes, it's called New Babylonians. I believe she has another one coming out, which we talk about on the pod. I just think that saying the word pod is funny. Um... We'd actually been trying to arrange this interview for a while, so it was great to finally talk to Orit. 
one of the kind of starting points or foundational ideas driving the podcast is to kind of challenge the dominant history of Jewish identity. And stories like this are really part of the patchwork that kind of expand our understanding of what Jews are and what Jewish identity is. And so it was really exciting to chat. So here's our interview with Ari. Uh, my name is Orit Baskin, and I'm a professor at the University of Chicago, and I specialize uh, in modern Arab history and also in the history of Jews in the Arab world. And my two latest books, one which was published about three years ago, I believe, and one that is about to come out in August, deal with the history of the Iraqi Jewish community. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have a two-part question to start with. The broader one about what kind of inspired you to write New Babylonians. Mm -hmm. And do you see this work either before you were writing it or now that you're looking back on it a few years later as kind of challenging dominant conceptions of Jewish history as kind of monolithically centered in Europe? Or is my question in and of itself centering Europe? And should we just completely ignore this question? So thank you for this question. <clears throat> so my first book on the Iraqi Jewish community, New Babylonians, actually dealt with this history with two goals. So one is to actually say, look, what happens in Europe is not the same as what happens in the Middle East. So the community had a specific trajectory that was actually not informed by the conventional notions of uh, perpetual persecution of Jews in Europe, which is a very dominant narrative in European history. And so in certain Islamic societies, Jews were not persecuted to the extent to which they were persecuted in Europe. Those were multi-ethnic, uh, multilingual societies, and so their histories were different than in European communities where the Jews were kind of singled out as the ultimate other. Uh, not in all periods. And of course, there are periods where the Jews thrive in Islamic societies. Islamic Spain is the famous example, the Ottoman Empire in certain moments. So this is a very long and complex history. And one of the things that sort of bothered me the most is not just the fact that, you know, it's different or similar than Europe, but also that in the Anglo-Saxon world, Jewish history is stretched between Warsaw and Minsk or something like that, and then moved to the Lower East Side and Toronto. So there's not, it's not that it's even different narratives, it's just that there's not enough attention to this kind of history. So that's one um, sort of motivation that I have. At the same time, I also think that speaking about these worlds as completely opposed to one another and employing the categories of East and West that are very different is not very helpful because Iraq was under British occupation in the 1920s. Then in the 1930s, Jews have to grapple with the rise of Nazism and fascism, with a pro-German coup in 1941, with uh, urban riots in Iraq. And then the answers to some of these questions are rooted in Western ideologies, be it nationalism, socialism, and communism. That is very productive to think about 
you know, radical Jewish communists in Baghdad and compare them to radical Jewish communists in Argentina or in uh, Poland and think about movements like the Bund. So I would say that it's kind of a back and forth, which I, I find very useful and productive. One last question, kind of before we delve more into the content of the book, uh, but do you feel that there's a linguistic dynamic as well in terms of like English sources versus Arabic sources? And, oh, yeah. And in the course of your research, do you feel like this history is better documented in Arabic, clearly? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And I think that one of the things to realize when people are writing the histories of these displaced communities is the complete archival mess. Israeli scholars cannot visit archives of Arab countries where the communities were displaced. Arab scholars can't visit Israel if they want to look at the local archives of the Jewish communities. And to complicate this, the archive of the Iraqi Jewish community was brought after the American occupation to the United States and right now is being fought about by Israel, Iraq, and the United States with each country wanting to use its sources. And I should say that Iraq is a particular case because its archives, its library resources were destroyed during the time of the sanctions and especially during the time of the war. Having said that, there is still, as I've mentioned, a plethora of sources. So autobiographies, novels, newspapers that have survived. I think writing research about Jews in the Middle East without knowing the local languages and the languages of the state is extremely problematic. Because if you just rely on what other folks wrote about Jews, misses out the voice of the community. In the same way, writing about these communities in Israel is also informed by what Israelis see Arab communities to be like, which is extremely ideological. Now, again, if I was extending my research to Jews of Iraqi Kurdistan, then I would even complicate my research even further. I'd have to do uh, interviews, learn Aramaic. And so there is a lot to be done in terms of Iraq. But I am very much against this kind of history that only looks at, you know, what Zionist emissaries wrote about them or what British colonial officers wrote about them. Of course, I consult these sources. They're important. But there's a whole vast world there that needs to be addressed. So just getting back to what you said earlier, something I'm interested in is the Jewish leftist history that's canonized tends to focus on Europe and uh, in, in North America. There's very little in comparison talking about the Jewish left in Iraq, especially during that time. In the New Babylonians, in, in the fifth chapter, you wrote a bit about a specific period of the radical Jewish left within Iraq. And I was wondering if you can just tell our listeners a bit about that period and, and what the political legacy of uh, the Jewish leftist movements were. Yeah, so uh, thank you for that. And I should start early. So in the years 1939 to 1941, fascist elements grew somewhat stronger in the Iraqi public sphere, and many Jews who believed in sort of this idea of the Iraqi nation and all that were disappointed at the Iraqi right and its flirtation with Nazism and fascism, and this kind of culminated uh, in a coup that happened between April and May 1941, at the end of which, when the coup sort of failed, when British forces entered Baghdad, there were two days of chaos in Baghdad where 179 Jews were massacred in a pogrom known as the Farhud. So after that, the, the Iraqi youth, the Iraqi radicals, looked around and they sort of thought, okay, uh, what are the options? Tiny minority went to the Zionist movement, but then 
a large number of the youth actually went by the Communist Party. Now, in general, after 1941, the Communist Party in Iraq becomes a major power. The fact that the Farhud was still fresh on their minds pushed Jews, for specifically Jewish reasons, to join the Communist Party, and they become very important. There are two general secretaries who are executed, um, and their percentage in the movement was slightly higher than their percentage in the population. So the involvement was significant, and then actually for my new book, Impossible Exodus, that deals with the Iraqi Jews in Israel, I show that when Iraqi Jews came to Israel, uh, the activists actually joined the Israeli Communist Party and adopted very pro-Palestinian positions that helped Iraqi Jews who lived in Israel, that organized protests and demonstrations. And these folks later on in the late 50s and uh, early 60s leave the party, but the Communist Party in Israel had a very strong Iraqi component in the 1950s, as some of it survived throughout. Now, the Israeli component is very interesting because Jews of Middle Eastern descent, or what sometimes is called Mizrahi Jews, because of the extremely problematic ways in which the Labour Party, which was in charge of Israel in the 1950s and 60s, quote-unquote, absorbed these Jews because of the failure of this Labour Party to deal with the challenges of mass migration. Many of them turned to the right, and they vote to right-wing parties. So then there is an assumption in Israel that is actually promoted currently by the Israeli government that Mizrahi Jews don't like the left, that the left is an Ashkenazi project, that the left is a European project. This silences the history of the Jewish left in Arab countries, which is in recent years began to be documented by several historians. Joel Bainin and Rami Ginat wrote about the history uh, of the Jews in the Egyptian Communist Party, and Lior Sternfeld uh, is now looking at the history of Jews in the Communist Party in Iran. There's a fantastic dissertation which is turning into a book on the Jews in the Moroccan Communist Party. So the history of the Jewish left is actually very important and very valuable but it's virtually unknown for political reasons, right? Because it's easier to imagine Mizrahi Jews who are the could supporters, hostile to the Arabs, and so forth. And again, in Arab countries that have, especially in a place like Iraq, that had its own share in silencing the voices of the left, obviously, you know, the history of communism in itself was not studied. So something something in your writing that stood out to me about this period and, and, and this radical leftist milieu around the Iraqi Jews is a dedication to struggle where they lived and yeah. a dedication to understanding the nature of their struggles as being tied to material conditions and institutions where they lived and solidarity with other people facing that. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the culture that was coming out of and what that milieu actually looked like on the ground. So um, the Iraqi Jewish community was mostly an urban community that resided mostly in Baghdad, so 90,000 in Baghdad, and then the rest kind of Mosul, Basra, and smaller communities spread in the north, speaking Aramaic, and in the south. Now, the entirety of Iraq from the late 19th century to the, can even say until the oil boom in the 70s, is a country that goes on from reform to reform to reform, amen, centralization and state building. And what this does, it ties various communities together through transportation, through education, and through inner migration. So from the north and the south to Baghdad, and then in Baghdad itself, because of urbanization and because the Jews become part of the Iraqi middle classes, 
you have Jews who move from strictly Jewish neighborhoods to either more modern Jewish neighborhoods, but more commonly to mixed neighborhoods where they live together with Christians and Muslims. Um, and what that does is it changes the fabric of their cultural identification, whether it's the school, the cafe, so kind of take away the role of the synagogues or parallel the synagogues in kind of being spaces that organize community life, this kind of thriving Baghdadi public sphere with its journals and newspapers and communist cells and youth movements. And it ties them together much strongly to the Muslims and the Christians. At the same time, they become more and more Arabized and they become more and more involved and attached to the languages of the state. So Judeo-Arabic, Arabic written in a Hebrew character, sort of declines and Arabic takes its position. Now, the more they're integrated into these neighborhoods and the more that they're integrated into the fabric of the urban uh, scene of Baghdad, the more entrenched they become in Iraqi culture. And so they publish short stories and poems. They added newspapers. So they're aware of the fact that they're Jewish, but at the same time, they're also part of something greater than that. So to talk about one of the tensions that clearly manifested in the 40s within the community, you write about the League for Combating Zionism. Now, uh-huh. for the uninitiated, for those who do not know about this organization, could you uh, explain it? Yes, yeah, so this is an organization that existed for about uh, three months, but actually was quite influential. It was a communist organization. But what they were doing, and quite effectively, is organizing Jews and Muslims and Christians over objection uh, to Zionism. And their argument was that you have to separate Judaism from Zionism. And in that, they were not that different than other Jews who in large numbers were fearful of Zionism in the sense that they thought that if the conflict in Palestine gets worse and worse, people are going to blame us for being collaborators with Zionism, which in fact happened. So there was a practical element to that, but there was also sort of a very pro-Palestinian but also class-informed argument. And the argument that they were making, which is not very original, I mean, in the sense that this argument was made by other Jewish communists across the world, is that, you know, whenever the class struggle intensified, then the Jews are used as a convenient scapegoat in order to steer the attention of the masses from their own troubles to this imagined racist concerns. But they were saying, you know, this actually, this kind of tensions, this kind of arguments that Jews and Muslims can't live together um, actually serve Zionism. And they were saying, we can live together. And so the answer is really to um, play a part in the, in the class struggle and to fight for social justice and equality in Iraq. Um, and they were having a, a journal, uh, the Al-Usba, that published a few articles, and they um, organized in uh, 1946 a very dramatic demonstration protesting Zionist politics in Palestine. And actually, there are a few thousand people in the street, and the police react very violently, opens fire, and one of the demonstrators who is killed is Jewish. And there are um, actually descriptions of how Shias and Sunnis and others go to this guy's home to express their condolences with the family. But at one point, the state feels that this organization becomes too dangerous. And so what they do is they actually say, you know, these guys who claim that they're anti-Zionist and leftist and radicals, they're actually Zionists. And they take them on a ridiculous trial, and they're dismantled, and some of them are jailed, and others have to escape. 
So it's very short, but the long-term effects of this organization, the kind of ideas that it proposed, actually reflect ideas that were circulating in communist circles and leftist circles. And it's kind of part of this really desperate effort of the Jewish community, especially after 1945, sort of saying, we have nothing to do with this kind of project in Palestine. Don't make us responsible for whatever happens to the Palestinians. And that's a lost battle. They they lose it at the end. But it's important also to think about the strategies in which they, they challenge these perceptions. I was wondering if we could bring this to the present to a certain extent. It seems like in recent years, the institutional Jewish community in North America, in relationship to Zionist organizations, has become increasingly focused on Jewish communities who were displaced or left places like Iraq, like North Africa, Middle East. Obviously, it's a very complicated issue. I don't think it's like simply one answer or the other. But do you see this history being operationalized in a way that it hasn't been in in previous years? Yes. So um, I think that there are a few things. One thing is that Israel initially, when the Jewish communities arrived to Israel, did not ask for compensation or appropriations or anything like that for the Jewish property frozen in Iraq, for the Jewish property lost in Egypt. And the idea was that everything will be solved as part of a mega deal that will solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. That never happened. But the Likud government had done, especially after Oslo and scholars like Yudha Shinhav have written about this, kind of a use of the question of Jewish property in Arab countries and their displacement as a way of saying, you know, not only Arabs had the Nakba, also Jews had a Nakba of their own. Now, it's a very complicated question because while this is being manipulated, there is this question of how do you respect the suffering of Jews from Middle Eastern countries, their displacement, their horrible life in Israel after they arrived under severe conditions, and how you tell this history without making it into a weapon against the Palestinians. As there are several ways and several Mizrahi radical writers uh, living in Israel have suggested them. One way of kind of rectifying this past without having it used as a blatant tool against the Palestinians to sort of say, let's tell the story from beginning to end. Let's tell the stories about the history of the communities in the countries where they lived, Morocco, Egypt, Iraq. Let's tell the story of the entirety of the community. Let's not just tell it as a perpetual yearning for the land of Israel, although that existed on a religious term, but let's tell the story of the merchants and the local patriots and their lives there. And also their friendship with Muslims, their pro-Palestinian positions. Then let's tell the story of their displacement, but then let's tell the story of what happened to them when they arrived to Israel, how they were treated there, how much they suffered, actually. So what I find extremely problematic about, you know, the, the kind of political vision of somebody like Israel's Minister of Culture, Miri Rabiev, is that she's willing to recognize kind of oppressed Mizrahi cultures in Israel and oppressed Middle Eastern histories, but it's only to a degree, right? It's only in order to talk about suffering, redemption in Israel, pogroms, European culture sucks, but it never translates into progressive ideas about the society in its entirety. The history of Jews in Arab countries, Iran and other places is important, but it has to be told with honesty, with clarity, with taking into account 
all people in the society. Uh, it shouldn't be told just as a history of either, you know, religious Jewry or particular rabbis or particular Zionist activists. The whole range should be there, just like it should be in Europe with Bundists and uh, secularists and men and women and children. Uh, this story needs to be told. Well, Ari, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about this. Sure. Yeah, that was a pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out. I mean, we can go back and forth on the thank yous, but thank you for writing the book. It was great to read. <laughs> yeah, thank you yeah, very much. And thank you, thank you yeah. so much. So that was our interview with Orit Bashkin. Hope you enjoyed. And like you said before, we're done with our break. So we'll be back uh, with a new episode next two weeks. As per usual, all hate mail, the Trafe podcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, see you in a few weeks. Trafe podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganegahaga territory. As always, we have many people and groups to thank. David, would you like to uh, lead us in our thanks? Sure. I don't think we've ever thanked an organization on this show. Fair enough. Hyperbole. But thanks to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Cadence O'Neill, who designed TravePodcast.com, and to C. Lavery, who produced our new poster. Um, our staff rabbi, Ariana Katz, should be given thanks. Josh Dolgan, a.k.a. so-called... And Sack Syndrome for the intro music. Please send all comments and suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. What kind of social medias can they find us on, David? You can follow us on Twitter or on Facebook. Yep, that's accurate. And Trafe is T-R-E-Y-F, not to be confused with T-R-A-Y-F or T-R-E-I-F. We'll see you in two weeks. Let's do this all over again. Okay. This is low energy. It's Jeb Bush. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start again.